And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello world, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie and I am flying solo today. There's no harmony, but never fear. We've got a really exciting episode for you because we've got a special guest with us today. So I'd like to take a a moment to really welcome Tashi Buyan. Will you tell me a little bit about yourself and your upcoming release, A Show for Two? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Tashi Buyan. I'm the author of Kind Out With You, which is already out, and the upcoming A Show for Two. So I live in New York. I grew up here. I just graduated college like two years ago. So it's been a wild ride being an author, but I'm really excited and really grateful. And just, you know, it's just really amazing to be able to connect with readers like that. But uh, so A Show for Two is about a aspiring screenwriter. She's in high school. She's 17 years old. And what happens when an indie film star goes undercover at her high school and she tries to convince him to take part in her short film? This novel is super, super cute and the romance is adorable. 10 out of 10. Our podcast is like a, a feminist sort of leftist podcast. So I'm not going to ask a ton of questions about Emmett, but he he's fantastic. Great male lead. <laughs> the, the romance is so hate to love adorable. So for any of our listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to read the novel yet, just just know that it's there, it's fabulous, and you should all pick it up. But I guess kind of aside from the romance, this is also a really complex and multi-layered novel that follows our main character, Mina, on kind of a mental and emotional journey as she realizes that getting everything she's ever wanted, which is namely going to the University of Southern California's film program, might not actually be what she wants anymore that escapism won't solve her problems or kind of help her handle her family-related trauma. So I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, what were you thinking about when you were thinking about Mina's character? Why was it important to you that she be so dream-focused as kind of her main tool for coping with her reality? And why was it important to have that dream change so dramatically at the end? Yeah, so I think for a lot of people who are in that situation where they're struggling with their mental health and maybe don't have access to therapy or medication and so on because you know they're young they don't they don't feel comfortable telling their family whatever it is they kind of have to find their own coping mechanisms and so for Mina that's been trying to find an escape somewhere where she knows that you know maybe she'll be happier there obviously she knows that she'll probably always live with her depression but there's it's better to be in a happy environment than to be in a obviously hostile environment. So she's always dreamed of kind of going somewhere else. And then I think when she found the University of Southern California, it just seemed like 
the perfect escape because it accomplishes both her dreams of becoming a screenwriter and also getting away from her family and finding that peaceful haven for the first time. And so for her, I think it was just like she fixated on it so hard, kind of like a hyper fixation and really put all her effort and emotion into it. Because if she was thinking about getting into USC, she didn't have to think about how horrible other things were and how hopeless it kind of felt. So for her, I think it was like, if I think about this and just focus on this, then I don't have to worry about anything else. I don't have to think about how crippling this depression is. I don't have to think about how I'm so sad and tired and exhausted and just, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. So for her, it's really important to get into this school and accomplish this dream. But like you said, as she's trying to accomplish this dream, she's realizing that maybe it's not really what she wants and that maybe she's kind of created an idealized version of this in her head, not realizing that there are consequences to focusing on something entirely like that while neglecting other things in your life. And so I think she really needed to find that realization that, you know, you can accomplish your dreams without losing everything else at the same time and that you can't really outrun a lot of the things that are happening to you like there's no way to you know really outrun your demons because they will always be with you no matter what you do and so i think that's why her dream changes so drastically at the end because she realizes it was really never about the dream in the first place it was really about trying to escape that trauma and find a way to heal but then realizing that she can heal in other ways yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like she has to leave to yeah. start kind of coping, coping with her life, which I think is a very hard lesson to, to learn that physically removing sure. yourself from a situation doesn't necessarily solve the situation. I know. It's so easy to just be like avoidant and be like, anyways, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And diving into that a little bit more, Mina has a, a really hard and interesting relationship with her family. I mean, she's got this very moving and beautiful relationship with her sister Anam, which is put a bit to the test throughout the book, but a lot of trauma related to her parents that's resulted in, at the very least, a deep, deep dislike for them. And one of the things that I really appreciated about this book is that there's no neat bow to tie on the end of her relationship arc with her parents. That tension is still present even at the end of the novel. And to me, that feels very true to life and super important to portray. So I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about crafting that relationship between Mina and her parents and kind of what your goal in getting everything across was and why you kind of chose to left to leave that aspect of the ending open-ended instead of having the healing sort of be like, and now everybody's best friends again. So I think I, when I was writing this novel and when I write all of my novels, I'm kind of writing it for 16-year-old Tashi right, who was going through it and didn't really have the best of situations. And so I know there's so many other teenagers who are also going through, and not even just teenagers, just people in their lives who have these really complex relationships with the people who are meant to love them and meant to take care of them. And sometimes you don't know why. You can't really ask somebody, be like, why do you hate me? You know, especially if it's, someone who's in a position of power over you. So for Mina, she's just, she doesn't really have any explanation for why they are the way that they are. 
And there's only so much you can write off, right? You can be like, maybe they're just having a bad day or like, maybe that's just how they grew up or whatever. Like it doesn't excuse the actions at the end of the day. This is your child. You knew you were having a child and you should do better by your child. But so for me, it was really important, I think, to kind of get across that complexity of just being so tired, I think. And Mina is an avoidant personality. So she's, she definitely very deeply dislikes them, but she just kind of wants to get away from it. Like she doesn't even want to think about it or deal with it. She doesn't have the energy to even properly hate them, I feel. You know, she's just kind of like, I just want to get away from this. I don't want to think about this anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. And so I think it was kind of important to me to have different perspectives of that relationship. Because in Counting Down With You, for example, Karina has similar-ish parents. And so she has a completely different outlook. And so I think it's important to kind of explore all the different ways that people react to having parents who can be a little, you know, rough around the edges, if you will. And so for Mina, it's just, she's at a point where she's already realized that they're not good parents. She's already accepted that, but she also can't really do anything about it. She doesn't have the power in this situation to fight back or do anything of that sort. And I think that honestly, most children never have that power. It's honestly really difficult, I think, to gain that upper hand in that situation. And so while I was kind of resolving, quote unquote, resolving the situation, I knew that there was no way to wrap it up in a neat bow because it's not like if your parents have treated you that way for that long, they're not just going to suddenly stop (laughs) because you're like, actually, blah, 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 blah. You know, they'll just find something else to nitpick. It's like, no matter what you do, there's no pleasing them. And I think Mina also realizes that, which is why she doesn't even try to kind of please them. So for me, it was important to remain realistic to the fact that a lot of people won't have that closure with their families and just have to kind of live knowing that no matter what they do, this family will never be enough. And that's okay because you can find family in other places and you can make new relationships that fulfill those needs for you. And that's what Mina does. So I think she finds her closure with other people instead of finding it in that specific relationship. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I feel like all of that totally comes across in the novel. And I think too, a realization that she has towards the end was this idea. I think she might be talking to Rosie, but it's possible that she's talking to Anam is that just because, you know, she's got this desire to leave and go to California, it's not going to unmake her parents being her parents, right? They're always, unless right. she decides to take the step to completely cut them off, they're always going to to be involved in some way and physically removing oneself from that situation. But something that you just said that was really interesting that I didn't necessarily think about in the same way is the idea that she's just almost too tired to have the energy to hate them. It's just... I think, and I think too, something about her is that because she's so settled into the situation, it feels both, she almost understands that it's not worth it to expend that energy on hating them. But it's also like that, that tired aspect of the fact that they've just bared down on her so much and this love for film and her passion is what she's got left. Yeah, that was, that was a really, really interesting. Like they've kind of like chipped away, they kind of chipped away at everything else. And this is all she has left now. So it's all she knows how to focus on. 
Yeah, and she she describes it when she's thinking about Emmett as as that they have very similar roots, like they they came from the same place in that sense. And I thought that that was such a beautiful metaphor, both in terms of describing why their relationship is so good, but also in the sense of I think it gets to the bare bones desperation of why she's got to hold on white knuckled to her love for film, getting you know winning the Golden Ivy Film Festival with such intensity and ferocity and pass her blinders yeah. on it's like it's like a survival instinct almost yeah yeah absolutely and she wants and she doesn't want to just survive she wants to thrive which is what the chance that we all deserve in yeah life, but she's pushing through so hard to get there i would and i think too you know because of nina's strained at best relationship with her parents there's also a huge aspect of the novel that deals with her feeling disconnected from her Bangladeshi heritage. And it plays out in so many ways, big and small throughout her life. There's conversations in the beginning about how she feels a little bit less connected to her religious background, even though she believes in God because of this, to like her father's deep love of cooking, but her inability to connect with him and learn the recipes he's making because he doesn't offer to teach her anymore. And it's kind of another one of those bits that feels like purposefully open-ended, purposefully unresolved. This isn't a novel about Nina trying to understand how to be perfectly diaspora, whatever that would even mean or look like, or connect more with her heritage necessarily. It's more about, I think, that exploration of what it means to have society tell you that you're living in some liminal cultural space. So I was wondering why you chose to, to leave Nina's relationship to her diaspora experience as unresolved in that way. And kind of how her relationship with her heritage sort of intersects with that fraught relationship with her parents. So Mina kind of talks about this pretty early on in the novel, saying that her and her sister are both non-practicing Muslims. And that, so they still believe in God, but they don't really actively practice the religion. And she kind of says that she also feels disconnected from being Bangladeshi as well. And so I think that a lot of times when you're growing up in another country, your diaspora, you're not growing up in the mainland, the people who are supposed to teach you about your culture and religion are your family, like your parents, and they're the ones who are going to pass that down, right? And so for Mina and for her sister Anam, they don't really have that experience because there's such a disconnect between them and their parents. And so the people that are meant to teach them all these things don't even try because they don't sit down and have conversations. And at the same time, it's like, it's not just their parents' fault, I guess it is, but also like Mina and Anam actively avoid their parents, right? So they, because of how their parents have treated them. So they themselves don't ever try to sit down and be like, oh, can you tell me more about my culture? Because they're afraid that if they do sit down and have that conversation, in the end, it'll just hurt them. Right. So they actively are like, I don't I don't want to even try to deal with this. And so for me, for Mina, she feels kind of a little guilt. I want to say she wishes that she could be closer and that she could understand more. And she kind of says in the novel, she's like, maybe that's something I'll be able to do when I'm older and when I have more freedom to explore and learn. But I think it's also harder to do when you're older. Because when you're older, you, again, don't have those people who are supposed to teach you. Like, you kind of have to rely on the internet or outside sources and all of that. And I think Mina's kind of accepted that and understood that. And so I think by the end, she's still kind of really disconnected. 
she obviously knows things and there's parts of your culture that you know are always ingrained in you just from living around people who have those same things but she never really is able to fully connect with it and nor does she really try because again it's like at the end of the day connecting with her parents is kind of a terrifying option so i kind of left it open ended at the end because mina has that opportunity after the book ends to try and explore it and to learn more about it in other ways but also when you've been that traumatized i think sometimes you might not even really know how to even go about it so i think that's kind of why i left that open ended i do think there's so many children of diaspora who feel disconnected from their identities and i'm sure having people who aren't really willing to teach you doesn't really help with that yeah yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense and i think you know the idea of it being harder to reconnect as you get older i think really rings true to me and the idea that then you have to create and and forge new relationships and new connections and you have to actively go and and seek out and it's not even just the fact that for certain people that act of new connection is probably pretty scary because i'm sure that it is on on a lot of levels but it's also i think just, right. i don't know the weight of adulthood <laughs> living under capitalism just yeah. like sucking all of your energy and i think also just being set in your ways yeah. like I, i feel like by the time you're 16 17 18 you know you're a fully formed individual at that point and there's always still sure. that room to grow but i just really i loved that honesty i think at that point you really have to make an active effort you can't just be something you half heartedly do and i feel like like you said like when you're an adult you're just kind of oh, okay i'll get to that maybe next week maybe next week maybe the week after that you know you're like yeah let's go yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's just one of those things where it's, i think that we also inherently i i guess tie in and connect to those very base cultural understandings that we make when we're really really little and i think that there's this yeah. at least in the states this very western understanding of the values you grow up with in that sense are like just what you take yeah. with you and i think that we don't have a society it's also like you know how, how it's really hard to learn a language when you're older because your mind is it as moldable yeah it's like that i feel it totally is and i and i feel like we don't really have a society that's set up for people to reconnect when they're older that sort of personal growth is something that we're all conditioned to think happens when we're younger and it just it doesn't always nor should it but it's it's i love that aspect of open honesty in the novel and also again how it plays into that trauma and how mina's really unafraid to name that what happened with her parents is trauma and it's been traumatic and it's ongoing that she's still dealing with i think is really important i feel like trauma feels like such a big word that's assigned often to huge life-changing events that happen just once but in reality for so many of us trauma is tiny things that build up and build up and build up over time and i was i was thinking as as we were talking about all the different ways that trauma shows up in in Mina's life and when you sort of had her name that trauma was that like a really conscious choice to be like it's important to name this and put this on the page so that younger readers can see that you're allowed to own this and name this yeah for sure it was definitely a conscious choice because like i said in carrying out with you it's a similar situation but Karina doesn't name it she doesn't know it, that it even is 
what it is. But Mina at this point does know what it is. And I thought it was important to name it just because I think that so many people grow up in environments like that and don't really recognize that it is a traumatic thing. Because I think that when you grow up so used to it, you're like, well, this is just normal. This is just how it's supposed to be. Right. And then I think that being able to read that and recognize that this is something that's happened to me or this is something that I understand and can empathize with, you kind of recognize that maybe I'm also, you know, in this situation. And I feel like that's also important because then you kind of know your self-worth, almost not like your self-worth, but you deserve better. You know that the situation that you're in is not ideal and you deserve better and that it's not your fault because I think that's also really important. Recognizing that the way you're treated is not your fault. It's just, it's the fault of the people who are doing it to you. And so I really wanted Mina to be able to name it and also kind of recognize that it's something that's happening to her, but it doesn't have to define who she is. She can still have dreams and great relationships and a life and she can be happy. And I think my novels at least I try to make my novels a story about hope at the end of the day, no matter what's happening to you and how hard it can be, there's still hope for something better. And maybe it won't be perfect because that's not how life works. You're not going to suddenly get a happy ending where suddenly your parents are like, you know what? I'm, I was actually horrible. You're an amazing daughter. Like that's not always how it works, but that doesn't mean you can't still have hope for a better life and for happiness and for escape and just good things in your life and the ability to thrive and finally be who you truly are. So I think it was important to me to keep that alive while also being able to say this is a bad situation. And this is exactly what I'm facing right now. I think that the hope aspect really plays through. And I think that in this novel, it comes through so much of Mina's character because she's just so realistic and such a straight shooter and so funny that I think that it just she feels so realistic and I think that related to all of that another topic that I think is handled totally brilliantly in this book is Mina's mental health throughout the novel she's really open about the fact that she has depression she thinks and talks actively about how she handles the disease and we see her navigating it in her day-to-day life But it felt so normal in a way that's true to my personal experiences, at least. And I feel like I so rarely see mental health issues portrayed in such a way where as an individual, I'm like, oh, yeah, that totally checks out. That tracks. That's how I and so many other people I know navigate similar situations. So I was wondering, were you sort of purposefully trying to normalize experiences with depression when you wrote me as experiences the way you did? Or did it just kind of happen as a side effect of Nina's life and personality and this is just how she rocks and rolls? I think it's kind of like a mix of both, actually, where like when Mina's character came to me, I didn't know she was going to have depression at first. But then as I was writing it, she was, she very clearly had it. And I was like, oh, okay, I see. But then once I realized she had it, I was like, okay, well, I want this to feel like something that's normalized and something that it's kind of also goes back to what we were just talking about having readers kind of see it and be able to recognize it because also I'm sure a lot of readers have similar situations with their mental health and don't really realize what it is they're going through so I definitely wanted Nina to be able to put a name to it 
in carrying on with you it's like a similar thing where karina has anxiety and she also puts a name to it and it's also kind of what i was saying earlier in the novel where mina doesn't really have the resources to deal with it in a better way yet she can't really like i said get therapy get medication whatever it is she can't really do it yet because she doesn't have the access her, she's on her parents health care whatever it is you know she doesn't have the access yet so for her it's just a daily part of her life that she has to micromanage as she goes through the day and depression isn't just being sad it can be being sad at times but it's also just this deep weary tiredness i think and lack of motivation and just an unwillingness to kind of do the things you know you should probably do even though they would be good for you and so for Mina it really manifests i think in the exhaustion but also in kind of like the self sabotaging i think cuz she really focuses so much on this dream of winning this competition and going to USC and all of that to the point where she is neglecting other things in her life and it's a byproduct i think of having depression in that she's this is the only way i can cope with my mental health right now and she doesn't recognize that it can be harmful to other people and so i think just the way that she lives her life she doesn't even know that she's kind of doing it i think a lot of the things she can recognize sometimes some days you're lying in bed and you're like okay yeah i have depression like i'm just lying here doing nothing right now and i don't have the motivation to do anything and then you could be like yeah that's you know so i think mina has those days obviously where she's just lying there and she's like yeah but then i also think depression is something that leaves you you know even on your good days you still have it and it still affects mina on her good days even in the tiny aspects of how she's handling things and so i just think it's really important for mental health to be brought up more in a YA space especially because i think teenagers and yet young people who are growing up deserve to kind of know that they're not alone in what they're going through and that this is something that so many of us can relate to but it's also something that doesn't have to be the end of everything you know it could just be a part of you and it could just be something that you grow up with and you just you find ways to manage and hopefully better ways to manage the older you get like be able to go to therapy and so on finding better ways to kind of cope with it But when you're young, you can kind of only do so much. And I think for me at least when I was a teenager, reading a book with someone like Mina would have been such a comfort to me to know that there are other people who have gone through this and made it out, made it out. They found a way out of this. They lived, they survived, and it's not, you know, over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think too something about Mina and the way that she sort of manages her depression is that she is actively managing it but then we also see the very human aspect of the ways in which that she's not managing it perfectly and as you mentioned some of that is because she can't right she doesn't have access to therapy she doesn't have access to potentially medications or other sort of tools like that but some of it is also just because we can't always be perfectly self-aware right there's that scene while she's on winter yeah. break and she's and she's having one of those episodes where she's in bed and she's really struggling and she's up all night watching movies and that's how she's getting through and she has the active thought of but I can't get into therapy right now but I need to find better coping mechanisms than this which feels so real but then also there are those ways in which she doesn't see how it's affecting other parts of her life because she's not some omniscient human right. and she can't perfectly manage everything yeah. in relation to it so I loved that aspect of it as well yeah 
I think it feels really real to how we deal with it in real life. Sometimes you're just going about your day, you're trying to do the best that you can, but the best that you can is not always the best in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it also, it, this this also relates to, to the one of the main conflicts that and sort of the climax of the novel as well, which is sort of the misunderstanding, miscommunication that happens. But I, I feel like the miscommunication trope gets a really bad name with readers, but I think that it's done so perfectly here and so relatably because this isn't a situation where you're reading it and pulling out your hair thinking like, just talk to each other. It's more of a situation where everyone is talking and no one is really being heard or being, being understood. Mina feels as though the root need of her desire to escape to California isn't being truly understood by the people closest to her. And then Rosie and Anam and Emmett feel like Mina is trying to escape them, the people who love her, and that they're being abandoned and pushed aside in the name of winning the Golden Ivy Film Festival. And then their problems are being minimized because of it. So it's not like everyone's not talking about these things, but like they're just not connecting. And I was wondering what you want readers to take away from this conflict and also its resolution about communication. You know, like if you could give Mina one piece of advice about dealing with this situation, what would you say to her? Oh, that's such a good question. What would I say to Mina? I'm like, I'm also mentally ill. So I'm like, would I just end up in Mina's situation? Like, I don't know if I have this self-awareness. I think for Mina, the advice I would give her is kind of the advice that Emmett does end up giving her, where it's kind of like, you can't run from this. No matter how far you go, they'll still be there. It doesn't matter if you're halfway across the world because you'll have the lingering effects of trauma. There is no way to run from that, right? So I think that that's probably what I would say to Mina to realize no matter how far she goes, it's really not going to be enough. But in terms of the communication aspect, I agree. It's not really miscommunication in that they're not communicating because like you said, they are. Multiple times over the book, they say to each other, well, you're not getting it. This is what I'm telling you. And they're like, no, you're not getting it. This is what I'm telling you. And when you're stubborn enough, I think you just are, well, I'm right. So I don't want to, I don't even want to try to understand what you're saying to me. Or like, you're blowing things out of proportion. You don't know what you're talking about. Or like, you know, this isn't even like, that's not even what I meant. Blah, 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 blah. So you're not really connecting even though you are communicating about it. And I think in order to connect like that, you have to really let down your walls and just be willing to have this really open understanding conversation where you really try to empathize with the other person, which is really hard to do. I actually don't even know how many times I've had conversations like that in my life. I feel like it's a really rare thing to sit down with someone and have such an open, willing to understand conversation where you're both trying to really heal and understand the other person and so Mina really doesn't attempt to do that for most of the novel she's just kind of this is ridiculous like I just need to focus on my goal whatever whatever or the other people in her life also kind of have the similar problem where they're like Mina blah 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 and they're not really expressing their true reason for being as upset as they are for example her sister's like oh, why are you focusing on this? Without saying, I'm afraid of you leaving. It's not, you're not communicating exactly what it is because it's such a vulnerability thing, right? Being vulnerable with people is scary. It's 
so scary. But Mina and Anam, for example, really have a really emotional conversation at the near the climax of the book where they really kind of they're just like both crying and they're both like just talking about what the other has kind of missed. And it really, I feel like when I was writing it, I cried. I was crying. I don't even have a sister, but I was like, oh my God, like. <laughs> but I think it's something where you just have to be willing to just listen. And sometimes you're not willing to listen until you hit the breaking point. And then you're like, I probably should have listened earlier. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that going off of that too, I think there's also that aspect where the people that they're not hearing are all the closest people to each other, right? For for Mina, it's her sister, it's her best friend of the world, it's her love interest. And I feel like sometimes too, it's easy to fall into that situation where it's maybe I'm not saying exactly what I mean, but I'm saying 75% of what I mean. And these people are so close to me that they're going to glean the other 25%, right? And I feel like that was so Mina's thought process of being like, but they're going to get it. They know me. They know what I meant. They know what I intended. And it, it was both, I think, the avoidance, but also just a normal way of communicating to assume that people are just going to pick up what you're putting down. Right. For sure. I think like a lot of times you say things and you're like, they'll get it. And they don't because you didn't say it. So they're not, you know, people can't read each other's minds. And I think that's something we forget a lot where we're like, they know what I'm saying. And it's sexy. No, they don't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it was just, it, it, it really, I don't know. It really spoke to me. It spoke to 16 year old me, who I think was the queen of saying half of what I meant and then being, why doesn't anybody understand me? I'm the most misunderstood person in the world, which I don't think that Mina had quite that level yeah. of melodrama, but the vibe was there, you know? <laughs> right, right. I guess shifting to talk a little bit about Emmett and film too, because that's such a large part of this novel. And so much of the hope of this novel comes through film and cameras for both characters. Film and cameras and, and lenses are such central themes of the book and also really powerful metaphors, I think, to show Mina's changing thoughts about her life and her philosophy. Mina says at the beginning of the book that part of the reason she loves film and movies and being behind the camera is because nothing's totally real or totally truthful. Everything is set up and framed and made to be just a little bit better than it is in real life. But then on the other end of the spectrum is Emmett, who feels like seeing life through his camera is seeing into the very truth of things. So I was wondering if you'd be willing to unpack a little bit of that metaphor behind Mina's film philosophy with us. And why it was important to have Mina kind of start from that place where everything's better in film and then kind of slowly move to seeing Emmett's point of view a little bit more. Yes. So I love that you asked that question. That was a great question. Yeah, I think for Mina, so she looks at all of this. She's looking at the world, right? And it's not good. She doesn't like what she's seeing. She doesn't like the reality that she's in. And for her watching movies, it's like, well, these are happy endings, or not even necessarily happy endings, but this is something that's so fantastical, that it's not this, you know, it's not whatever this specific situation is. And I'd much rather be in a movie than I would be here, you know. And so for Mina, she's like, when I look through the lens of a camera, I can make things up. This is a performance that's being put on, and things are better, and things are the way that I can decide, you know, when I'm on when I'm behind the camera, I can decide what's happening on the other side. And <clears throat> I think it's a lot of it is kind of a metaphor for her 
wanting to go to USC. It's like the idealized version of what you think will make things better. She's like, behind the camera, everything is better. At USC, everything will be better. And it's like, not really recognizing that that's not exactly true. There's a disconnect there. And so I think as Mina realizes that this idealized version of what she wants and this haven almost that she's created in her head is not necessarily the answer. I think she also kind of realizes with movies, it's like the reason she loves movies isn't necessarily just because they represent the alternate reality, but also because of what's true about them and what resonates. And I think that's also interesting for me because that's also kind of why I write books, right? In books, I'm writing for the hope of it all but also there's the nitty-gritty stuff right where it's just it's honest and true and painful and all of that and that's just as important as the more fantastical elements of this is fun and romantic and you know wholesome and sweet but it's also like this is rough and painful and hard and difficult and so i think that as mina knows more about emmett and sees more of new york city and kind of realizes what it is that she actually values, she kind of realizes that she's more in the middle. She's not exactly all the way to where Emmett is, but she's way more in the middle than she realized. And that it was really hard for her to come to that realization because it requires a deeper inner reflection of how she's viewing the world. I love that. I feel like that totally came across. And as you were, especially thinking about the better idealized version, as you were talking about that, I feel like I just had a light bulb moment about both characters too, where I think Nina so clings to the idea that she has the control to change the things about her life that she wants to see changed if she just waits it out and gets all of these things and makes all of this happen. She can live in that fantasized world. And I think that Emmett, on the other hand, it more feels like everything's out of his control. Yeah, I think about his relationship with his mom. He really did just have to have a conversation with her and things got a little bit better. And, and he just kind of was letting his life float out of his control because he felt like he had none. And you watched them come together as characters in a place where Mina's realizing she's got maybe a little bit less control over the way things are than she initially thought, but Emmett's realizing that he has more and they both kind of come together to meet into that lovely, healthy, healthier middle ground. Yeah. Oh my God. That's one of the reasons I love writing romance because I think it's about making each other better. You help each other become the best version of who you could be. And I think Mina and Emmett having opposite philosophies on that allows them to kind of grow, which I think is really great. Yeah, absolutely. And I love watching their relationship grow too, sort of from, I don't know, it wasn't, it was like a hate to love, but it was more just like they got off on the worst foot possible to love situation. Yeah. And I, I love that trope too, because I feel like it shows that growth. In terms of the hate to love trope, because of course, Emmett's an, an indie celebrity, he's about to be the next big thing. Did you go for the hate to love situation because it felt like an authentic way to sort of break down the barriers of celebrity between the two of them? Or do you just like hate to love? What was your thought process there? So I love hate to love, enemies to lovers, rivals to lovers. I think it's just such a fun trope. But I think for Mina, especially, right, she's kind of seen as a little rude at times, right? I don't think she is that rude, to be honest with you. I don't. But I think that she can come across that way without realizing what she's doing. 
And I think that's very obvious within the first few chapters where she'll say something to one of the other film club members and then Rosie will be like, bro, that was rude. And Mina's like, but I didn't even mean it like that. That's not even what I meant, you know? And then she's like, should I apologize? Because she doesn't mean to be rude. It's just kind of like she comes across a little snappy, right? So I think it was important for her to kind of come across as this little, uh, you know, a little rude to Emmett because then Emmett kind of already has the quote unquote worst impression of her possible, right? So then when he's seeing her be who she actually is, vulnerable and honest and chasing these dreams, he gets to see the better parts of her while knowing the worst parts of her. And I think that's kind of why a lot of people like the hate to love slash enemies to lovers slash rivals lovers trope or whatever it's knowing that somebody knows the worst parts of you and still chooses to love you is such a such a empowering thing and i also thought it was important because of mina's situation with her family right because as far as she understands they don't like her or the way that they do is just so twisted that it doesn't even come across that way anymore, right? So I feel like in a lot of situations like that, children probably wonder, what is it about me? What did I do wrong? What Was I the problem? Mina doesn't really like really dive deep into that because she, I think it's just some, something she's kind of accepted. But I think that having Emmett already see those parts of her that so volatile and so messy and so jagged and choose to love her anyway would really build a healthy dynamic between the two of them because she wouldn't have to really doubt that he knows how horrible quote unquote again i don't really think she's horrible you know what i'm saying how horrible she can be i guess because for example in the confrontation she does lash out right and so does he i think when you're having an argument it's easy to lash out but when she lashes out she doesn't worry now Emmett's seen the worst part of me because she's already lashed out at him before in the beginning of the novel. So I think for her, it's just, it's good to know that someone can love you no matter if they've seen the worst parts of you. Yeah, I hear that. I think that it's, it's not just that he has to break down her defenses and make her vulnerable. It's that he's got to get past the literal kind of prickly defenses that she has because of all of how all of this trauma has informed and shaped her personality and I think that watching him have to chase after her in that sense like she is she's she's okay with their friendship for a while after it starts to form but it takes a lot of work for him to really convince her that he's serious about her and I think that watching him decide that she's worth all of that really just I don't know. It was a very beautiful and heartwarming moment that I I think was made more powerful by the fact that the first impression he got of her was that prickly defense, was of her being like, I can't believe you're being like this, essentially. I just bumped into you. What is happening here? Right, right. And and that, that digging under the surface. Yeah, for sure. That is all of the questions that I had for you. But is there anything that you want to talk about about the book that I didn't ask you about or anything else you'd like to share with us? Ooh. Hmm. Okay. Well, one of the things that I always say is that A Show for Two is like a love letter to New York City. And I think that is something that really comes across from the cover, which is literally them with the backdrop of New York City to the way the story is kind of formatted in that it's them going across the different five boroughs of New York City. And so while I was writing that, I kind of really wanted to explore how falling in love with someone can also 
influence the way you see the world, I think, right? As you, everything just looks brighter and better and happier and good when you experience things with the people you love. And it doesn't even need to be romantic necessarily. But I think when you start making good memories with people, in places that maybe once were because oh. Mina really just started off the book being like, I hate New York. I just want to leave. I don't want to be here. It's so nasty. It's so grimy. This place sucks. I just want to be out. But then the more time that she kind of spends in the city, especially with Emmett, the more that she's like, this is my home. If I wasn't here, I would really miss it. This is who... This is the city that shaped me. And there's a line that references Taylor Swift's Cornelia Street because that song is iconic, where Emmett basically says, this city screams your name louder than anything else. Because for him also, I think on the other side, learning about New York City through Mina also makes him fall in love with the city as much as fall in love with her. So for him to see her quote unquote hate it so much and want to run from it doesn't make sense to him. Because he can see how much she loves it just from the way that she's showing him it, right? She's showing him it through the lens of his camera, if you will, right? And for him, that's always, we talked about before, how he kind of sees the truth of things. And so to see Mina on camera loving New York City and then have her be like, no, I hate it. I just want to go to California. He's like, what What do you mean? What are you talking about? So I think for her, having that kind of journey both physically and metaphorically realizing where home really is was really something I sought to accomplish with this book. And I feel like a lot of people have said that reading it makes them want to come to New York or blah, blah. And I'm like, that makes me so happy because I feel like I also grew up wanting to leave New York and not wanting to be here. And, and my actual dedication in the book is to New York City for loving me first, because I think that Unlike Mina, Mina realized it pretty early on, but it took me a while, I think, to realize like I really love this city so much. And I could never not live in this city. And I think for Mina, she thankfully she comes to her senses a little earlier than most people might. But for her, I think New York also kind of loved her first. Everything about the city is who she is. And then for her to kind of realize this is also the place I love. This is my home. This is who I am this defines me and I'm okay with that because I love this place and I love the people in it and I love making happy memories here I think was really one of the things that I was I really want to get this across I think it totally came across it it just it felt like it it this novel couldn't have been set anywhere else it it was made for New York and I feel like you really get that I wish Harmony was here because she lives in Queens and has for the past five years and just totally is absolutely in love with the city but I oh my god, I also live in Queens. So true. Oh so yeah, true harmony. Um, yeah. She, uh, yeah, she, she, she's obsessed. Uh, all I hear about is is the neighborhood she lives in, which is interesting because I've never, I've never, I don't think I've ever really been to Queens. I I grew up in Connecticut on the Metro North Line, so I've spent a lot of time in Manhattan specifically and the Bronx. But I don't know that much about mm-hmm. Queens. So now clearly I've got to go see what Queens is all about. Yeah. But I think too, going back to what you said and not getting into a tangent about my personal life. Sorry about that. Is that it's also this really no beautiful moment of healing as we watch her fall in love with the city because her hatred for the city is so tied to her parents, right? And I think that, you know, as as the reader from the outside looking in, 
I think it was one of those moments where every time she talks about hating New York, it really, it's always tied to this terrible relationship she's got with her parents and all of this trauma and being able to see her separate it from that to love it for itself to understand almost like like, kind of reclaim it yeah like almost reclaiming it yeah that's exactly what it was that was so beautiful and so powerful and I loved that for her that was it was just like a lovely way to end the book it was to just see her take that back for herself yeah and I think it's what everyone kind of deserves you know to be able to take back the things that maybe people have ruined for you and realize it doesn't matter if they've ruined it because you'll always love it. Yeah, yeah. And that for in a lot of cases, although not all cases, people only have the power to ruin things for you if you give them that power and you give them that weight. There's exceptions to every rule, but I feel like with Mina's relationship to New York right. City, she had the agency to take that back for herself. Yeah. And I, I'm, I think that that's one of the reasons it could have only ever been Emmett, who was her love interest, because he's the one that you know, took her on this journey almost. Yeah, she he gave her a, a new avenue of understanding herself and a new avenue of understanding the city that she grew up in. And that and, and again, it's all about like that, like learning and growth together, right? He was new to town and, and able to unlock that for her. Yeah, exactly. And it worked out for the best. It did. It did. I loved the epilogue. It was so cute. I won't spoil it because when this episode comes out, it'll only be like a week after the book comes out. But adorable 10 out of 10 will probably read again another 20 times and just squee like I'm a teenager again. I definitely thought the epilogue was very funny. As I was writing it, I was like, I think I think readers will get a kick out of this. <laughs> it was so good. It was just that perfect chef's kiss moment of and they did get everything they wanted in the end. And that's what they deserved. Exactly, exactly. Well, Tashi, thank you so, so much for being here today. Friends, the book just came out on May 10th, which is right before this episode came out. So if you haven't had a chance to pick it up yet, pick it up, preferably from your local indie bookstore. But hey, you know, a library is also fabulous wherever you grab books from, all good. Next week, Harmony and I have another author interview for you. And we're talking to Carlin Zawarstein about On Opium, pleasure, pain, and other matters of substance. So we will see you all next week. Tashi, thank you so much for being here. This was a lovely conversation. Of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram, at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook, at rebelgirlsbook1 on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.